Uh, now, I realize that there's a lot of people in this room who I've never met before. You don't know who I am. So, hi, my name's Travis. Uh, I'm the college and career pastor here at Bay Life Church, which means that most weeks uh, I spend some weekdays and then specifically my Thursday nights with the 18 to 28-year-olds in our church. Uh, we work through the scriptures together. We talk about what it means to follow Christ uh, in our current cultural window, uh, and by God's grace, I pray that we are making mature disciples of the Lord as we come to his word on Thursdays and throughout the week. And every so often, I get the opportunity to be here with you on Sunday mornings, and my prayer is that the same thing would take place, that by God's grace, we would come to his word. Uh, we would examine it and examine ourselves in light of it. And so I would invite you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, will be in verses 1 through to 7. If you're new to our church, or maybe just back for the first time in a couple weeks, let me bring you up to speed on what's going on. We, as a church, are spending time walking through the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy. These are letters written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. They tend to get grouped alongside the book of Titus and collectively sort of named the pastoral epistles. These are letters that Paul has written very close to the end of his life, he is likely in prison awaiting execution in Rome, and he's beginning to realize that he may not live to see the return of Christ. And so in light of that, there's a burden that falls to him, which is that it is his job to do kind of what we've talked about with Awana or uh, Fall Festival or Halloween. His, his job is to train up the next generation of Christians uh, so that they will be able to faithfully shepherd the church as they await the return of the king. And it's with that in mind that Paul is writing Timothy. As I said, Timothy is this young pastor in the city of Ephesus. And it seems, based on the letter, I know Mark has mentioned this, that, that there is some, some conflict in the church. There's some false teaching that is arising in this church that Timothy has been charged to pastor. And as you kind of read First and Second Timothy, it seems like Timothy is sort of this timid guy who shies away from conflict who doesn't want to have an argument with people, who doesn't want to have to, to raise his voice. And so this timid guy in the face of great difficulty and false teaching is, is being tempted towards what, what we are so often tempted towards in the midst of difficulty, which is to turn and run, uh, to go find greener pastures, to let that ship sink and find a new ship to captain. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, encouraging him not to leave, not to jump ship, not to abandon this church to error, but instead to graciously but steadfastly remain and steer these people towards the truth. Now one of the things that sort of concerns the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to a large degree is that Paul is interested in Timothy understanding what the church should look like when they gather, when they do what we do on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings, when they come together for the purpose of public worship. That's what nearly all of chapter two is, is it's Paul explaining to Timothy, Here, here's what your gatherings should look like. And that might seem strange to you and I, especially as it's related to error. Why is that what you're going after when you've got false teaching in the church? But that only seems strange to us because on the last, in the last 50 years or so, we've been raised with pithy catchphrases like, we don't go to church, we are the church. 
The fact of the matter is that any Christian in the last 2,000 years pre-1950 would have said, what? That's a false dichotomy. You go to church and you are the church. Uh, That's an an idea that's entirely foreign to the New Testament, that the gathering of believers together corporately for worship, for prayer, for for the the partaking of the Lord's Supper, these are not burdens to be uh, shrugged off with pithy catchphrases, but this is the grace of God in your life to be embraced and celebrated, and it's doing something important and formative for the sake of your Christian maturity. And so so Paul tells Timothy, if you want to deal with the false teaching, you must get your worship right. You must take your gathering seriously. And this has played itself out throughout church history. In in the 1800s, there was a movement within the Church of England called Unitarianism. And and Unitarians uh, developed and sort of pushed this idea that, that the Trinity was not actually true Christianity. And so they're trying to steer the church away from this doctrine of the Trinity, um, just so I'm unambiguous here, uh, to reject the Trinity is heresy in all branches of Christianity. And eventually, the, the Unitarian movement said, we can't do it. We can't convince these people to give up this idea, and so we're going to have to start our own congregation, our own denomination. It became Unitarian Universalism. And one of the Unitarians, as he was writing about why he finally had to leave the Church of England, he said, their worship has so formed them and so shaped them that they won't listen to what we're saying. That is to say that the worship of the people of God, when done rightly and taken seriously, serves as a vaccine against false teaching. It preserves the people of God and the truth of God. And so Paul says to Timothy, if you want to deal with the error in your church, you need to get your worship right. And make the main things the main things. Later on, uh, Paul is going to tell Timothy that when they gather, they should devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture. So we want to heed the call of Scripture now on our congregation through the words of Paul. So I would invite you, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We'll read it, and then we'll walk through it together. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So Paul begins his instructions to Timothy about what the church should look like when they gather. Last week, uh, Mark kind of jumped ahead in this text, and I just want to tell you that I will forever be grateful to Mark for taking that from me, because had I been in his shoes last week, I would have had like a a vomit bucket backstage because my nerves would have been so, so bad. So so he he goes on a little bit further uh, in this text that we dealt with last week to talk about what teaching in the church uh, needs to look like, and I think Mark did a good job with kind of dealing with some of the complexities there, but but he begins this text, he begins chapter 2 explaining what the worship of the church should look like by saying, first of all then, 
I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, in the, the English language, in, in our day-to-day lives, you can sort of number and list things out in no particular order. Uh, for example, uh, your grocery list generally doesn't tend to be written in order of importance, as in the top thing on your list is the most important thing. It's just whatever comes to your mind as you think about what you need to get from the grocery store. That's not what is happening here for Paul. In the Greek, he's not starting a list that can sort of be rearranged into any particular order because they're all um, of equal importance. When he says, first of all, he in the Greek is saying, of the utmost importance, the most important thing, the most significant thing that should happen when you gather, I urge you. So he says, this is the most important, and I'm urging you on top of what is important. When you gather, pray. And he actually lists all sorts of different kinds of prayer. Because prayer is a broad umbrella. There's, there's different ways of praying. There's different uh, kinds of prayers. There's different flavors of prayer. There is prayers of adoration, where we go before God, and we, we magnify him, sort of like what we've done in our worship songs. There are prayers of intercession, like he lists here in this text, which is that we're going before God on behalf of somebody else. Maybe it's someone who's sick, someone who's in a a season of difficulty, someone who's in a season of despair. There's prayers of thanksgiving, where we thank God for the good and perfect gifts that he has given us. The point that Paul makes, however, is that the people of God, when we come together, when we do what we're doing here this morning, of utmost importance to this is that we are praying. It's as if he, he wants to say to us, if we are to avoid error, if we are to gather rightly, if we are to be about the things of God truly as God would have us to be, then when we come together in worship, we ought to also come together in prayer. Perhaps uh, the greatest preacher in the last 100 to 150 years is a man named Charles Spurgeon. And you've probably heard Charles Spurgeon's name because he tends to get quoted a lot on social media. It makes you look very deep and thoughtful when you quote old dead theologians. And so Charles Spurgeon gets thrown around a, a good bit. But Charles Spurgeon was a minister at the New Park Street Tabernacle in London for 38 years. During those 38 years, this church grew to a significant size. There was hundreds upon hundreds of conversions. The problem of orphans and foster children in the city of London was significantly reduced because the congregation was committed to living out their call as Christians to care for the widow and the orphan. There are some historians that would say that the only reason the city of London did not implode during times of financial crisis was because of the generosity of the people in this church. So, so this church has a profound and significant influence in the life of the city, and that naturally attack, attracted the interest of the reporters for local London newspapers. And so one such reporter asked uh, Mr. Spurgeon if he could sit down with him and talk to him about why his church had been so successful. How was it that so many people were becoming Christians in the era of Darwin and Hume and Enlightenment skepticism? And so he sat down on a Sunday morning before service. He asked these questions, and Mr. Spurgeon took the reporter to the basement of the church, and he opened the door and invited him to step in. And what the man saw in there was nearly the entire congregation in fervent prayer for the service that was about to take place. 
And he said this. This is why this church has had such, such influence. Uh, this is why you are seeing lost people in an age of skepticism come to saving faith in the gospel. This is why you see our congregation stirred towards love and good deeds because we are on our face before the Lord every day and especially on the days that we gather. Spurgeon heard the words of Paul in this text well, that the people of God must be in the business of serious prayer, especially when we are amongst one another on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. And, and hear me when I say this, Baylife, the consequences of us not taking prayer seriously are probably far more dire than you and I would like to imagine. It's not just that if we don't pray during our services and don't commit ourselves to prayer that, that maybe you won't quite get the liver quiver and the emotional response during worship that you're used to. It's, it's not just that you know, maybe service will be a little bit awkward and, and Mark or myself or whoever's preaching will be a little bit off their game if we don't pray. It's not even just that there might be one less rose on the stage if we don't commit ourselves to praying, although that is a serious thing. But hear me when I say this. If we will not be a church of prayer, we should not expect to be a church much longer at all it is that significant it is that weighty that when Paul explains to Timothy here is what you should be doing he says first of all most importantly I urge you pray I'm a I'm an MDiv student at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and when I tell people I'm working on my Masters of Divinity, they think that I'm taking classes on how to fly or shoot lightning out of my fingers or something really impressive. Uh, but MDiv stands for Masters of Divinity. It's, it's a degree in Bible and theology. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in class, and my professor got on sort of a, a tangent, but it was a good tangent, talking about the importance of prayer in the Christian life. And he said something that I've been mulling over as I've been looking at this text in the last week or two. Uh, he said, you know, I, I've known many men and women who've walked away from the faith. Uh, some of them I went to seminary with, uh, some of whom I've served on church boards with, uh, some of whom I've been on missions trips with, but without fail, every single person I know who has walked away from the gospel began their journey when they cease to pray. And if that is true of people, it is certainly true of churches. So let me give you a little bit of negative advice here. If, if you would like to see Baylife Church utterly implode, wither on the vine, shrivel and die, then the best course of action for us going forward is to treat prayer as a gloss by which we can remove the awkwardness of the podium being brought out and the band walking off the stage. If you want to see our church die, then let's treat prayer like a formality and something that we sort of have to begrudgingly sit through rather than the lifeblood by which God meets with his people and steers and directs us. But if you want to see this church flourish under the good hand of our God, then we must first and foremost be urged to prayer. So what sort of prayers does Paul call us towards? He says that these prayers of supplication, intercession, thanksgiving should be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Other translations might say for kings and rulers and all of those in authority. 
So Paul wants to make it clear. When we gather, we pray. Who do we pray for? We pray for everybody. We pray for all people. But, but then he sort of starts throwing some categories out of, of what sort of all people should we be praying for. Well, he says specifically for kings, for rulers, and the NIV includes authorities. He's, he's naming political leaders, categories of political office. If that isn't a controversial word for our time. I realize that many, if not most, of the people in this room are older than I am. You've lived longer than I have. You've seen more than I have. Uh, but in the few years I have lived, I can think of no more fractured a time politically ever. We genuinely hate the people with whom we disagree, by and large. There, there is a seething contempt that marks our political discourse. And so, so let me just be abundantly clear about what Paul means for Timothy and by virtue of the Spirit's inspiration, what this text means for us, even in our fractured political climate. If the last guy who was in office was not somebody you voted for and you refused to pray for him out of contempt, you were in sin. If the present guy in office is not somebody who you voted for and you now withhold your prayers because you despise him, you are in sin. If the future fellow or female who is placed into office is not the person you wanted there and you refuse to pray for them, you will be sinning. And, and the temptation here is to try and find a way to contextualize our way out of what Paul is plainly saying to us. Well, Paul wrote this a long time ago. He had no idea who was or would be or is presently our leader. If he had known, he never would have said such a thing. The problem with that is Paul is writing this from prison. And Paul is in prison because the kings and the rulers and the authorities of his age think that you should be put to death for being a Christian. And yet, the very people who are about to take Paul's life from him, he says to Timothy, pray. Pray for them, intercede for them, give thanks for them. Ask that under their leadership we might live, live peaceful, quiet, and godly lives. So why? Why do we pray? Well, he goes on and he says that this sort of prayer among the people of God, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He desires that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So this sort of prayer, this prayer for all people, even for those who seem like they may not be the sort of people we would pray for, even those who seem like they might be enemies of the gospel, we pray for all of them. And this sort of prayer is pleasing to God because he desires that all people might be saved. You know, I live in um, Seminole Heights, uh, so about 20, 25 minutes from here. This is the part of town where all of the cool coffee shops are starting to pop up that are way too expensive. And I'll just confess to you that personally... I'm a Folgers man. It all tastes the same to me. When, when somebody tells me that there's notes of chocolate and grape and I, I, parsley in coffee, I think you're lying. I don't believe you. Coffee is coffee. I can tell that it's good. I can tell that it's bad. But beyond that, I have no idea. And yet, I find myself at these sort of fancy, overly priced coffee shops pretty often. Um, they're a good place to work. It's nice to get out of my single-bedroom apartment with my cat and be around other human beings. And so very often I'll end up in these, uh, these coffee shops with a stack of books by old dead theologians and my computer and my, my 
two-gallon cup of coffee. And this, this strange thing happens when I have this stack of books next to me. People see that as like an informal invitation to debate. They, they look at the stack of books and go, ah, you must want to argue with me about whatever religious issues on my mind. I really don't. <laughs> I legitimately have an exam I'm studying for. Like, please leave me alone. Um, if you see me, feel free to talk to me. This is not me being distant. But, but I end up often in these conversations just by virtue of what I'm reading in a public place. Uh, in one such conversation, I was talking to a guy, he's about my age, uh, and he had decided that there was no hell and that everybody ultimately would be saved in the end. He was what we would call a universalist. I said, okay, there are people who say that. Uh, why do you say that? And this was the text he went to. Well, God wants all people to be saved, and God gets what God wants, so everybody's going to be saved. The problem with that is that it treats this one sentence as though there are no sentences before and after it. And very often, this sort of approach to Scripture sees passages in splendid isolation rather than as a coherent unity and a whole, telling a unified and multifaceted witness to who God is and what he's done. Because the point that Paul is making here is not that there is not judgment, that there is not eternal separation from God. The point he's making here is that God's desire is that all sorts of people would be saved, even the ones who don't initially seem like they're good prospects for salvation, namely Paul, the persecutor of Christians. Because for Timothy, his beloved mentor Paul is in prison awaiting death because of kings and rulers and authorities. And so Paul says, no, 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 I want you to pray for all of them, even the ones who have me here, even the ones who may well, kill me, because I, too, once persecuted the church of God, and out of every tribe and tongue and nation and division of people, God has those who he will save, so we pray for them all, because God desires to save, even out of the groups that seem like they would never make good candidates for our church membership. So then what drives the prayers of the church is ultimately a desire to see the lost come to know the saving power of the gospel. That is what we pray for when we gather. And perhaps um, my favorite Christian theologian in the last 50 years or so is a man named John Stott. He was the rector of All Souls Church in London. He was an Anglican minister. And Stott wrote prolifically, traveled often, spoke uh, across the world, w- was heavily involved in the missionary movement of the last hundred years. And in one of his books, he describes being out of town on a Sunday, and so he decided to attend a local church to the region that he was in rather than the church that he was the rector over. And he said that at this church, the pastor was out of town, and so the elder uh, stood up and led the prayer for the congregation, and he prayed for three things. He prayed that the pastor would have a good vacation. Uh, He prayed that the secretary who had a cold or a flu might feel better. And then he prayed that they would have a good service. Now, all of those things are good. All all of those things are, are worthwhile prayers and petitions to present before the Lord. All of them have some sort of biblical rooting. Yet Stott said that when he left this church, he left sad. Not because anything they had prayed for was bad, but because the church, in his words, had failed to embrace the world through their prayers. 
They had been so, so myopic and so narrow-minded and so closed to the mission of God that they never prayed for the lost. They never prayed for the broken. They never prayed for unreached people groups. They never prayed for those who have not yet heard what Christ has done, what God has done through Christ and the power of the Spirit. They prayed for a good vacation, nice service, and someone to feel better. They had failed to grasp the wide and wild mercy of God. But that's what Paul wants us to do when we gather, to apprehend the mercy of God, to pray for the gospel to go forward, even among those who we didn't vote for, even among those who put Christians in prison, even among those who we think are our enemies. Our prayers must be wider and deeper and more wild than what we so often confine ourselves to in this corner of the world that we call Brandon, Florida. And then see what he grounds his prayer in. Verse 5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So this is the flow of Paul's thought. Of utmost importance, I urge that you would be a people who pray. A people who pray for all peoples, especially the ones that seem like your enemies. Why is this? Because God desires that even those who might seem like your enemies would come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Why is it that we pray? Because there is one God. And in this one God's mercy, he has provided Christ, the Son, the mediator, to pay the ransom of our debt so that we might be brought back to him. What's the grounding of our prayer when we gather? It's the gospel. Paul, Paul grounds our prayers as a church when we come together in the gospel that the one true God from whom man has been separated by sin has been reconciled through the atoning work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Why do we pray? We pray because Jesus by his very life has afforded us the right to approach the throne of God boldly. That should excite you. That should encourage you. That should also terrify you. That should terrify you because if prayerfulness in the church is grounded in the gospel, then that means that prayerlessness in this church or any other church is not ultimately a matter of just running out of time in our programming or people in the modern era have, having short attention spans. It means that prayerlessness in our church shows that we have not rightly grasped the weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then prayerlessness here at Bay Life, if it so exists, is not just because we don't have enough time. It's because we have not rightly reckoned with the weight of our ending punctuation mark. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Those are costly words that we should tremble to utter, but utter often. So Paul says... First of all, when you gather, you are to be a people of prayer. You know, um, in the office every so often, people give me a hard time. Uh, they give me a hard time because I have the inability to preach for more than about 30 minutes. I could spend years studying, and I'll still condense it to 30 minutes. And this week has been about 30 minutes. But here's the beauty. We now have 10 minutes to actually be doers of the word rather than simply hearers and spend some time in prayer. And so that's what we're gonna do. 
uh, as Brad comes out, uh, I want to invite you all to spend some time heeding the call of Scripture on the life of this church and every other church. Spend the next few minutes in prayer. And so there'll be three specific topics that we're praying for. If you'd like to bow your head and pray on your own, you're welcome to. If you would like to pray with your family or those who are next to you, then that is also open to you. But I want to invite you all to bow your heads. We'll be praying for our missions teams going out. We'll be praying for the national leadership of our government. And we'll be praying for our pastors and elders. I'll open us and I'll lead us through each topic and then I'll close us in prayer. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and then I'll invite you to pray as the people of God. Righteous Father, we come before you hearing the call of your word that you have breathed out by the Spirit to testify to the work of the Son. God, we ask now that you would make us a people of prayer, that this time that we consecrate unto you to approach your throne boldly would not be a one-off experience, but that we would begin to walk in prayerfulness, that it would be of the utmost importance to us. We pray now that you would lead us as we approach you. Take the next few minutes to pray for our Uganda, Scotland, Honduras, and Guatemala missions teams. I pray that those going would be empowered by the Spirit and that those in those countries would hear the gospel and repent and believe the gospel. Take the next few moments to pray for our president, for Congress, the House, the Senate, the leaders of our nation, as Paul tells us to in 1 Timothy 2. Finally, take the next few seconds and pray for the leadership of our church. Pray for the pastors. Pray for the elders. Pray for those who God has raised up among us to shepherd us towards Christ. Merciful Father, we confess 
that we have sinned against you in thought and word and in deed and the things that we have done, the things that we have left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And for these things, we are sorry and we repent and we ask for the sake of Jesus that you would have mercy on us. And we know that it is for the sake of Jesus that you hear our prayers as we approach you. God, as we lift up these missions teams that we are sending out to the nations in the hope that they would hear the gospel, that they would believe in the work of Christ and move from death to life. God, we lift up our leadership at a national level, our government. Lord, we pray for our president and for the leaders who are over us that you would give them wisdom and discernment to operate wisely. Finally, Lord, we lift up the leaders that you've raised up over us, our pastors, our elders. God, would you fill them with your spirit and with wisdom and discernment. Teach them to love you more. Teach them to to heed your call on the life of our church. Strengthen their marriages. Strengthen their families. Give them grace. And Lord, give us hearts that are humble, that are willing to be led as you lead those over us. And finally, Lord, I pray for the people in this room. Lord, I pray that you would empower them by your spirit to be a people who pray, who pray for our leaders, who pray for our friends, who pray for our community, who pray for our church, who pray for one another. Lord, send us out as a people of prayer, we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bay Life, we'll see you next week.